0: Hey, happy Tuesday from your NPR station, KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville. I'm Daniel Caruth, and this is a special archive episode of Ozarks at Large. We're bringing you some of our favorite pieces from earlier this year. And to start us off, producer Matthew Moore takes us on an unusual field trip to a graveyard.
1: Although it may not always feel this way, the Internet has probably been a net gain for humanity. Some elements of the recent past are much easier to trace thanks to the work of ever-expanding websites and cloud storage. I personally experienced this recently, searching for information about my maternal grandfather. He died in 1948 when my mother was just a few months old. In an effort to find more information about him, I came across findagrave.com, a website aptly named With a few search terms, you can find data and photos of nearly every grave in the United States, posted largely by a group of volunteers. One of those volunteers is Jim Harder.
2: Born in Cynthia, Kentucky, and grew up in nearby Winchester, Kentucky, near Lexington.
1: Jim has added more than 9,000 photos to find a grave since joining the website over 12 years ago.
2: Well, I've been taking photos, well, since... uh, Primarily after college, I did seven years in the Navy and did uh, some photography as, as well as that. Flew off a carrier. I was a naval aviator and was one, maybe the only person, to have three naval aviator wings mm. uh, due to circumstances as, as the time I went in to the, uh, into the Navy. And uh, for moviegoers, my last flight in the Navy was with Commander Dan Peterson, who was the person who started the Top Gun program.
1: Jim says his photography work picked up after his time in the Navy when he began working for the FBI in 1971 as both a pilot and an investigative agent. During his time in the FBI, he worked on cases... Like the Waco compound of the religious cult of Branch Davidians in the early '90s.
2: As an investigative agent, photographs are a big part of the investigation. Yeah, so I was always taking photographs.
1: And you were also um, you were also in the FBI during the Oklahoma City bombing yes, as well. Yes, uh,
2: I was in the Kansas City office, and everything except the bombing itself occurred in Kansas. Terry Nichols and Mc McVeigh. We're in the uh, Fort Riley area, uh, Harrington, Kansas. That's where Nichols lived, Mm -hmm. and uh, the picture of me uh, that I sent you, I was at the at the little like a storage facility. Storage facility where they stored the uh, the ingredients to make the bomb. Hmm. And of course, then the bomb occurred, and the FBI spent just weeks and hours. Uh, one of the most exhaust—it's one of the most exhaustive investigations the FBI has ever done.
1: These days, the photos Jim is capturing are not of apocalyptic cults or federal building bombings, but rather gravestones in cemeteries, like the Fayetteville National Cemetery, as well as the Confederate Cemetery in East Fayetteville.
2: I had been here for over 30 years and was not aware of the Confederate Cemetery, which is one of the most tranquil and serene places in Fayetteville. It's just a, a beautiful place. Uh, sadly, uh, as a result of the two battles fought near here, there's a um, the predominance of the, uh, around 500 graves. They're all unmarked. The ones that are marked are people that died after the Civil War and years later.
1: I'm going to pull it up here just to remind myself. As I look at your information here on Find a Grave, 8,974 photos you've taken. Um, You've added memorials for 1,377 people as of the time of our recording. At what point did it become a thing you just started doing all the time?
2: Well, it's just, you know, the cemeteries that are here are just so close, and I like taking the photographs, so it's just something to, to occupy my time and, and just enjoy having fun doing it
1: so Jim where are we at
2: we're in the Fayetteville National Cemetery
1: and uh, (laughs) as we pulled in here this afternoon we realized that there's actually a a burial that's happening (laughs) this afternoon as we showed up
2: yes you can the uh, funeral procession just arrived and as you can see looking uh the flag's in the center of the, uh, the the older section is at half mast, which is always done for the when the funeral's gonna take place.
1: Yeah. Um, let's let's just kind of walk here for a little bit and and as you come out, um as you're preparing to take photos, um, what's kind of your process? Do you typically, you know, do you keep up with the obituaries to see where someone's being buried? Do you just kind of regularly come out here to look?
2: Well, on occasion, I know of someone that's being buried here due to an obituary, but mostly I just come to see uh, the more recent ones that have just uh, been buried, and uh, the process, uh, as you, I can. There's a a temporary marker in this older section over there, and it takes about 45 to 60 days for them to prepare the permanent stone. Hmm. So a lot of times I'll take a picture of the temporary and come back later and take pictures of the, the permanent stone.
1: Personally, I have not spent a lot of time in cemeteries. However, in high school, I was a member of the school concert band and played trumpet. During my sophomore, junior, and senior years, a fellow trumpeter and I were asked by the local Veterans of Foreign Wars post if we would be willing to play taps at military funerals in the area. And so, a few dozen times, for $15 and a free pork burger back at the VFW hall, we would go to gravesides and play taps as part of the 21-gun salute for military rights. Jim was answering one of my questions at the Fayetteville National Cemetery when... We're looking at one here. This is Clarence Craft. Let's get this real quick.
2: playing of taps, you can go back to talk about your playing of the taps, when. you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just yeah. Here. Do you find it calming out here?
2: Well, I find most of the places, as I mentioned, are uh, the ones here in Fayetteville are just really tranquil and serene places. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, like right now, the taps display, just play, but the calmness and sereneness have returned.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's hard to say if Jim spends much time thinking about the existential element of why he does this sort of work. After his time with the FBI, Jim says he did some freelance private investigative work in northwest Arkansas. And perhaps some of the work he does on Find a Grave scratches that itch as well.
2: Just recently I had a back and forth with a person who lives near Tulsa about uh, a person, there was a mistaken information about him being buried in the National Cemetery in which uh, it was a mistaken identity which we were able to put together and determine that that person was not buried in the National Cemetery but was in a private cemetery in Mountain Home and we uh, were able to identify the person who was from Rogers uh, who was one, uh, a person that Was in fact the one that was in the National Cemetery. Oh, wow. So it's just, you know, being able to sometimes solve some mysteries about genealogy and and locations.
1: For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. You're listening to Ozarks at
0: Large. Keep up with your NPR station, KUAF, anytime when you follow us online at KUAF on Facebook and Twitter and at KUAF underscore radio on Instagram. You can also go online to KUAF.com.
4: The third annual Her Set, Her Sound Festival is back June 9th and 10th at West and Watson and Prairie Street Live in Fayetteville. Her Set, Her Sound takes up space to celebrate identity and empower women and non-binary DJs in our region. Guests can enjoy food trucks, vendors, and entrepreneurs, plus groovy vibes and activations to amplify her on and off the stage. Tickets and sponsorship information available at hersethersound.com. You're listening to a special archive episode of Ozarks
0: at Large. Researchers from the University of Arkansas have been working on a neural-enhanced prosthesis study to restore sense of touch for upper limb amputees. Reporters Rachel Sanchez-Smith and Sophia Nirani bring us this report from March. Sophie, after a conversation with some of the
5: members of the Institute for Integrative and Innovative Research, what stuck with you after that conversation?
6: Something that stuck with me was the real implications and the results of the work that these people are doing. This research can directly affect a participant's whole lifestyle and contributes to the knowledge behind centuries of work.
5: And it's almost just unthinkable to really know that the end goal for these researchers, you know, that they're actively working towards is to restore full sensory feedback from these missing limbs
6: and the fact that these researchers still have such a need for participants in this ongoing study.
5: Yeah, it's still a real need and that this research, as far as they've come, is still in its early stages. Every day, month, year, they're improving on an entire field that was made possible by research that was published just a few years ago.
6: This study confirms the possibility that rings true for amputees who experience ghost or phantom limb, a phenomenon where people with amputations feel very strongly that the phantom limb is still part of the body, able to be used and felt.
5: And Sophie, I think you'd find this interesting. There's an NPR article that came out last year where a biomedical engineer said that in a study measuring how fast it takes prosthetic users to pick up things, it takes users with that restored sense of touch about half the time it takes people with prosthetics usually to pick up these objects and move them. And in some cases, the person completed a task nearly as fast as an able-bodied person.
6: Wow. We asked Tommaso Benigni, a doctoral fellow, about where their research stood. And he and Srikanth Chivali, another research
5: assistant at the center, described the scientific and personal importance of their work.
1: This is a new field in general. I think the first real implants that started up was, I think, 2014, 2011. These papers started coming out sort of proving that, hey, just because you have an amputation doesn't mean those nerves are dead. That's not really, that's newish information before the two, after the 2000s. So we're we're learning a lot along the way. Um, and that's I think something that, you know, we're building on work of other people, the people that did a lot, but there's work to be done. We're getting information that we didn't have before on how to go from, you know, a robotic hand that you can grab something with, but you don't feel anything in like, that sort of basic thing that you expect you would have, and then how to kind of slowly transform that into something that feels natural, that feels like something you can actually use and go about your day, and how much of an impact that actually has on someone. Like, knowing how much pressure you're putting when you're grabbing someone's hand, like that can be the difference between like, holding your granddaughter and being like, and you know, feeling comfortable doing that, and being afraid you're gonna hurt her. You know, so that's why this work is cool. And that's why um, me working with participants like that is so exciting.
5: We also talked to Dr. Ranu Young and Dr. James Abbas from the Institute for Integrative and Innovative Research.
7: Functional value, obviously, right? If you know hand is opening or closing and you are touching something or gripping something, but there is also what it means for us to be engaged and embedded within our environment touch plays such an important role so you know whether it is touching you know your loved one's face that are holding somebody's hand all of that makes a difference and especially if you and it thinks that you know you might feel different uh, textures so while we are not at the level of saying can you touch silk or t- touch fur and be able to tell all that But we really are people who rely on our senses and all of the senses put together and what we feel, what we do with our hands plays a huge role in it. So it's also that emotional connection that you get with being able to touch or feel, you know.
6: I was also curious about research participants that they've worked with in the past and what kind of impact that they had had on their careers and future work. Dr. Young reminisced on her and Dr. Abbas's journey with prosthetics. I would say our, uh, the person who had the first implant.
7: You know, we had read about people uh, saying that, oh yeah, we got, you know, because of other research studies. But this happened in front of us. So the very first time when we had put an implant in to somebody who had lost the limb and when we gave him the stimulation and he he could, you know, first it was like it's a missing limb and then he held his wife's hand and and just that whole emotional thing for us to see his experience, that is gripping.
5: Dr. Young also described what responsibility these scientists and researchers have in using and creating these technologies.
7: Imagine this responsibility that if we do this right, this is the reality that we are able to give back to the person. Obviously, their brain and everything is part of the picture and interpreting and perceiving, but what we are able to do to give back. That is. That is such a profound opportunity, and we have, we have to be so thankful that we have this kind of an opportunity to actually make use of our technologies to allow a person that, you know, give them back that capability of being—getting their reality back, you know. That's, it's, it's also a responsibility.
6: Dr. Abbas also stressed that these patients give of themselves, their time, and the sacrifices they make, not just for their own sake, but for the future of science.
8: Their dedication and their willingness to take risks and willingness to commit to, you know, to, the, you know, to a project like this. And I think in several projects that I've been involved with, Well, all of the experimental work that has ever happened in my research lab over many universities and many labs and many projects have involved experiments with people. And so we're always asking people to help us test something out that is new. And sometimes that involves somebody coming in and doing something for a couple of hours and then leaving and it's over, and there's no real risk, and it's you know a couple of hours of commitment. But sometimes it involves taking a real chunk of their lives and their uh, time and their emotional well-being and saying, I'm going to dedicate it to this project. And that, I think, is something that's very special about this kind of work is that you know, we are certainly totally dependent on that willingness of people to participate, but we're also certainly benefits the project. That it's something that, you know, we, we need not only the information about that system, but we need to understand what it is, what's it like to live with a disability and what's it like to live with a situation where, you know, I had a spinal cord injury and so this, you know, you know this is how it changed my life. Or I had a car accident, and this is, and it uh, ended up with an amputation, and this is how it changed my life, and uh, you know, an industry accident or whatever. So that kind of experience and that kind of you know life and the experience of dealing with, in those examples that I gave, a traumatic event and how does that influence you? I think that is something that is. Um, very important for us as product developers, as engineers, to understand and not just sort of read about it and say, yeah, well, somebody, you know, um, somebody lost, somebody had, yeah, somebody had a spinal cord injury and now they use a wheelchair to get around. Okay. But what does that really mean for somebody's life? And, you know, that I think is something that we get from our interaction with the people that are participating and there's really no other way
5: to get it. it Sophie, when I think of a research study, I think of somebody going in maybe for a few hours, answering some questions, and then leaving with like a gift card or something. Not necessarily a years long study with not a well-known procedure and even an experimental implant surgery.
7: It's thinking about what people are willing to give of themselves. Because somebody like that, who is participating in a study like ours, where it is an investigational device, there is no guarantee of any, um, that this is going to do any benefit for you, and you are willing to, to really give of yourself for the betterment of the future of others. It, that is inspirational, and that is also something that we have to be profoundly thankful for and just understanding that there is more to life than just even making a piece of technology or doing that, right? Think about the person who chooses to volunteer in a project like this. And what so we are learning from them. We are learning about the graciousness of people and what they they bring to the rest of us. You oh, yeah. know, and to the future future
6: generations. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Sophia Narani And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith.
4: The Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers adventure and play every day. Families can explore more than 40 hands-on interactive experiences designed to ignite curiosity and fuel creativity. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Details on hours, upcoming programs, and more at amazium.org. This is
0: Ozarks at Large. I'm Daniel Carruth. Teeth are some of the most valuable artifacts for telling us more about our distant ancestors. Peter Unger, Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Director of the University of Arkansas's Environmental Dynamics Program, will lead a University of Arkansas Honors College seminar next fall titled Teeth. Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellams asked him about the seminar and if there have been recent discoveries when it comes to
9: researching teeth tremendously so. The, the way we use teeth to reconstruct diet in the fossil record has changed dramatically. It used to be all about the shapes and the sizes of teeth and what they can tell us about evolution. Now it's more about how we can use teeth to talk about the diets of animals alive at a moment in time in the past. In other words, um, We've shifted to something that I call food prints, which are kind of like footprints in the sand. They're traces of actual activity of animals that were alive at a given moment in time. So instead of looking at how nature has selected for sharp teeth for meat eaters or blunt teeth for plant eaters, now we're looking at things like the scratches and the pits on the teeth. We're looking at the chemistry. Of the teeth to tell us something about what those individuals whose teeth we hold in our hands actually ate on a daily basis. So it's a whole shift in our approach.
10: When you talk about these scratches, you're not looking with the naked eye.
9: No, we're looking at. I've, I use something called a white light confocal profiler, which is just sort of a a complex term for something that's basically looks at at, at slices uh, through. Uh, vertical slices through a tooth and uses that to reconstruct a three-dimensional picture of the surface at really, really high resolutions.
10: Can we... So is it... I'm going to really try to oversimplify this, but could you tell by some of this study that it was plant-based or meat-based? What was being eaten?
9: You can. um, And you can also tell whether animals ate hard foods or soft foods, whether the foods they ate... are things like grasses and sedges or bushes and trees, things of that nature.
10: And then we can use this knowledge that we gained to catapult to learn more about the animals themselves or or, or the planet at that time?
9: Diet is absolutely key to understanding the relationship between an animal and its environment. Okay? There's nothing more um, direct as far as ecology, which is the study of the relationship between animals and their environments than diet, because it's sort of what you take into your body um, to sustain and, and grow and develop and reproduce yourself. It's that part of the environment you take in. And so there's this sort of direct connection. And teeth are important because they're kind of the gatekeepers. They're the, the, the referees in this death <laughs> match between Eater and eaten, essentially.
10: Uh-huh. And, of course, it makes sense that teeth would give us so many clues, tissue and organs.
9: Well, Go te- away. yeah, teeth are the only, the only parts of the body that preserve through the fossil record.
10: Here's a silly question, perhaps: When you're in the field and you f- see a tooth, I don't know, do you just find a tooth? Can you tell? Oh, this could be from 50 years ago, or this could be
9: from a longer time ago. Absolutely, you can. You can really tell uh, based on the color of the tooth, based on the the, the density of the bone surrounding the tooth. Um, and you, if it's buried in the ground, it had to get there somehow, and if somebody buried it, you can actually see the sort of infill around it, so you really can tell if something is is very old or not. When you are in the field, and you go to a lot of different places, right? I suppose.
10: <laughs> How does it work for you? How does... Finding teeth. I mean, is it is it what we imagine with archaeological digs?
9: Well, I mean, there's there's... A variety of ways to do it. Probably the the standard way of doing it in human evolution research is to is to go out on the open savanna, for example, and look for little gullies uh, that are deposits that date back to the time period you're interested in, say one, two, three, four million years ago, and and just sort of walk up and down these gullies where s- streams and Brooks and things of that nature have sort of swept away mm. the uh, overburden, the, the, the sediments, and look for teeth sort of exposed in part on the surface. The other way to do it is to perhaps go into caves and dig. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, if, if there are fossil deposits there, almost invariably you'll find teeth. They're the most common fossils that we have.
10: You're going to be leading this Honors College Symposium are these the sorts of things you'll be talking about with students in that symposium?
9: In large part. I mean, I think the take-home message of the symposium is that we kind of hold in our mouths the legacy of our evolution. And in a sense, teeth are these amazing structures. Think about it. You've got to break food mm-hmm. with your teeth, without those teeth being broken— and they have to do it up to millions of times over the course of your lifetime. And they have to do it built from the very same raw materials as the foods that you're breaking down. What an incredibly inspired feat of engineering, right? But teeth are a lot more than that. They're they are they're an enigma. The enamel in your teeth are the hardest tissues you have. But teeth are incredibly fragile. Think about it. You've, You've got to take daily care of them like no other parts of your body. So they preserve for millions of years in the fossil record, but they can't seem to last a lifetime in your mouth. <laughs> right. So so what's the deal with that? Right. But actually, this course is not just about teeth. It's about this sort of idea that they're the legacy of our, of our evolution, the I use teeth to tell that story of our, of our evolution, of how a changing world made us human, how climate change triggered our evolution. And that's really what the course is about, right? Teeth in, the, in and of themselves are really cool, but they're not the story. The story is us. It's, and it's so interesting that really
10: teeth have become this uh, decoder that we understand so well in, in recent times.
9: Absolutely, and and in fact, the, the course itself starts at the beginning, half a billion years ago, with the very first teeth that gave our ancestors dominance over the or- organic world, and it kind of ends <laughs> with uh, agriculture, and and the clues that we can get out of teeth as to sort of what triggered our change from being basic hunter gatherers to to. Being agriculturalists and developing civilization and so on. We can read that from our teeth as well. And these are all sort of a result of climate change issues. And, and I, I really get into that because you know, climate tells us about the environment. You know, when the climates change, the environments change. And environmental change changes the foods that are available to our ancestors. And we can read that in our teeth. Over these
10: millions billion half a billion years do our teeth change because conditions change or okay let me let me see how i can how i can ask this do our behaviors that we adopt eventually lead to maybe some modifications in our teeth or do our teeth do changing teeth mean that certain species survive and others don't
9: Chicken and egg question. Yeah. Um, It's probably egg. Okay. (laughs) In other words, uh, or maybe it's chicken. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, In other words, uh, the way evolution works, as we understand it, organisms have a certain range of variation, and in one case, it's the shapes of their teeth. Those whose teeth are shaped in a way that gives them an advantage over other animals, are going to out-compete, survive longer, produce more offspring than those that have teeth that aren't as well-suited for the environment. So the teeth have to come first. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then as the environment changes, guess what? The organism whose teeth is best suited to that new environment is going to become dominant. Is
10: there any connection between what maybe current knowledge, dental knowledge, knows about our human teeth in the 21st century lends itself to what you can learn? I mean, so in other words, um, scratches that we find on teeth let me let me do it this way. Are there things we can learn about modern teeth that can help inform people like you who are researching ancient teeth?
9: Absolutely, and the reverse. Okay. Um, oh. So there are things that we can learn about from modern teeth that can help us understand the distant past because essentially our teeth are the product of all of these evolutionary events that have happened over time. And we can basically go back and look at each of the little elements in our teeth, the chemistry, the structure, uh, the shape, and they had to get that way somehow. They look different from our ancestors, and we can sort of trace back and understand how our teeth today developed and try and understand what caused those particular things to happen. On the other hand, in the opposite direction, we can use our distant past to understand what's wrong with our teeth today. Hmm. And there's a lot wrong with our teeth today. Our ancestors didn't have crooked and crowded lower teeth. Our ancestors didn't have upper front teeth that come and jut out in front of the lower front teeth. Our ancestors didn't have impacted wisdom teeth. These are all new things that afflict us in our society, but they didn't exist in the past because the environment in our mouths was different than it is today. And our teeth evolved for the environment that was in our mouths generations and generations and generations ago. So we can use that information really to to, to help us pr- pr- in, in clinical dentistry even.
10: There wasn't as much sugar in diet generations and generations and generations ago.
9: That's certainly true. And when you increase the amount of sugar that you are consuming, you change the mix of what are called acidophilic and acidophobic bacteria in your mouth. Um, bacteria that love acids and bacteria that hate acids. And... Those that love acids love sugars. And so there's, there's this constant balance. It's called the carries balance, actually, uh, that all animals that I'm aware of have. Um, dogs and cats and horses and cows and lions and tigers and bears all have a mix of good and bad bacteria, uh, acidophilic and acidophobic bacteria. That balance gets knocked out of whack when you put too much simple sugars in there for the harmful the acidophilic bacteria to take over to become dominant. All right, finally one last possibly silly question.
10: Do you think differently about what you eat now than when you started your professional career?
9: I try to not to think too hard. <laughs> okay. You know, I like I like pizza and ice cream and hamburgers too much. <laughs>
10: Very good. Peter, thanks so much for your time. Absolutely.
9: Peter Unger is Distinguished Professor
0: of Anthropology and Director of the University of Arkansas Environmental Dynamics Program and will lead a University of Arkansas Honors College seminar titled Teeth next fall. He spoke with Kyle Kellums in the Anthony and Susan Hoy
4: News Studio in March. The third annual Ozark Beer Company Cardboard Regatta is June 11th at Lake Atlanta in Rogers. Teams and onlookers are invited to participate in the over-the-top spectacle. Prizes will be awarded. Proceeds benefit the Rogers Public Educational Foundation. OzarkBeerCompany.com regatta for registration, rules, and more. You're listening to a
0: special archive episode of Ozarks at Large. I'm Daniel Carruth. Coming up, we get a lesson on the language of time from our militant grammarian, Catherine Schurlds. But first, the city of Lincoln is collaborating with the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust to perpetually protect Lincoln Lake, an ecological and recreational gym just a few miles north of the town. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich Takes us there in this report from last month.
3: A gaggle of geese squawked this beautiful spring morning perched on the banks of Lincoln Lake. Several fishermen cast lures into the clear green water. In the distance, a paddle boat sweeps by. <laughs> Josh Sanderson and Katie Bohannon clip on climbing gear to ascend rock bluffs along the lake shore. Lincoln Lake is a popular climbing destination.
4: They've been climbing out here for probably
5: three or four years now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a really nice place to come,
4: it's local.
11: Only place in the area that's local you can climb outside really.
3: Moore's Creek rushing beneath this low-water concrete bridge feeds the lake upstream. A 60-acre conservation easement with Northwest Arkansas Land Trust works to better protect the lake's water quality. Now Land Trust staff and city officials are collaborating to establish a conservation easement for this 400-acre watershed. Standing on the bridge, Mayor Doug Hutchins, a native of Lincoln, says, the reservoir was first impounded in 1962 for flood control.
12: And also a water source for the city of Lincoln. The city of Lincoln prior to that had been on a spring south of town, so it had about a a two-and-a-half, three-inch water line supplying all of Lincoln out of an open spring.
3: That was back in the era when tapping municipal springs were an Ozarkian tradition. The reservoir no longer serves as a municipal water source.
12: And at, at that point, uh, it started becoming more of a recreational destination, mostly just it was everybody's private fishing hole. And then moving moving forward, I moved back. Uh, I'm from here, uh, grew up here, I've traveled and moved my family back here to raise my kids. About 2004, we've seen where the city council at that point in time was entertaining the idea of selling the lake off to private landholders. and We jumped in there and put a stop to that and got it locked in through a resolution to preserve it for a park going forward.
3: The city park now features a hiking and cycling trail system constructed around the lake.
12: 90 acres of water in it, and uh, it's a horseshoe shape, so there's a lot of real craggy shoreline. It's very similar to Devil's Den's geography with water in it.
3: Lincoln Lake City Park rules prohibit camping, swimming, open fires, motorized all-terrain vehicles and boats, hunting and alcohol.
12: We put together an agreement with Arkansas Game and Fish for them to take over managing the biology of the lake and the fish habitat and also part of that deal was a cement launch ramp for the boaters and we put together at the city, we put together this parking lot, but part of the deal was to maintain the integrity of the lake and the peacefulness of the lake, no gas motors.
3: The mayor says it's time to place a conservation recreation easement on the park located on the Illinois River watershed.
12: Going forward as the area grows and the population density is expanding to our east at an exponential rate, we need to protect these areas.
3: According to Marcin Nance, Director of Land Stewardship and Research for the Land Trust, the watershed is habitat for the endangered Ozark big-eared bat, as well as rare botanical species documented by the Arkansas Natural Heritage Commission.
12: We want to preserve it going forward. You know, as, as in most places, I don't trust my successor. We don't know who that is. We don't know who that will be 50 years from now. So we want to make sure that, that we've got this place set aside for whatever comes, you know, and and protected going forward for our kids and grandkids.
3: Grady Spann, executive director of Northwest Arkansas Land Trust, headquartered on Smokehouse Trail in Fayetteville, hikes up a bluff trail to an overlook to better explain the transaction.
13: The way the conservation easement will work is we will work with the city of Lincoln to make sure that we are protecting what they want protected in perpetuity. In addition, we'll highlight and make sure natural areas for conservation value are protected. And that process will go through our board, through the city uh, city board of directors. And then eventually it will be filed with the Washington County Courthouse as a permanent uh, attachment to the deed that belongs to uh, this area.
3: The land trustee says secured a grant to pay certain expenses.
13: In addition to that, we put money aside for a legal defense fund uh, for the stewardship of the land because once we put something in a conservation easement, we then monitor that land to make sure it is adhering to that conservation easement in perpetuity. So that money is also uh, put away so that we can cover costs forever.
3: Peering out over the lake, Span says there's been no opposition to the proposed land trust agreement.
13: But the city council and the mayor have really been supportive of this whole project, which is exciting to me because this is a great example of how other communities can protect those very special places to make sure their citizens always have access to outdoor recreation.
3: And access improvements have been made to accommodate a growing number of locals and visitors.
13: This is a wonderful destination for people to uh, be encouraged to come to Lincoln, to spend a day here, but also visit the city of Lincoln. It's an economic thing for the city as well. And then in addition to that, we'll do a species inventory to make sure that those areas that are sensitive are also protected within the the easement. And so the process is that, and it'll take a couple of three months uh, to get this done uh, because that easement Once it's signed, it's in perpetuity, so we've got to get it right.
3: Grady Spann worked for Arkansas State Parks for 28 years. In 2016, promoted to director of state parks before joining the land trust. Founded in 2003, the nonprofit Northwest Arkansas Land Trust works across 13 counties, so far conserving 6,700 acres, which include 47 public nature preserves and private conservation easements, included our Flint Creek Headwaters Preserve in Benton County and Blackburn Bluffs, Wilson Springs Preserve, and the popular Kessler Mountain Reserve in Washington County. More details and ways to support this critical work can be found at nwalandtrust.org. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich.
0: You can find more reporting from Jacqueline Froelich and all of your favorite Ozarks at Large reporters anytime when you go online to kuaf.com. And keep up with the latest news headlines, feature stories, community spotlights, and all of our local coverage when you subscribe to the Ozarks at Large newsletter. It's free and delivered to your email inbox daily. Just sign up at KUAF.com slash newsletter.
5: KUAF's Listening Lab is now open. The Listening Lab is a space for honest and intimate conversations to better understand our neighbors and ourselves, and is made possible by the Walmart Foundation. This month, for Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in May, the Lab welcomed Ari, Abdullah, Lucas, Saad, Aisha, and Fawn, who shared with us their experiences living, working, and going to school in America.
3: About five times a day, you get this invitation that, you know, come, come and pray. Uh, just to hear that gives you uh, a sense of being being nourished in a way that the material world doesn't nourish you. I felt a little soul-starved when I came here because uh, my, my soul is conditioned to being nourished in a certain way.
5: You can hear more from the Listening Lab this week on KUAF. To learn more about the Lab and schedule your visit, Go to KUAF.com slash the dash listening dash lab.
0: And we will have more of that conversation for Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, as well as excerpts from other Listening Lab conversations on this coming Thursday's episode of Ozarks at Large.
10: This is Ozarks at Large with me at the Carver Center for Public Radio. our Milton Greer and Catherine Schultz. Welcome back.
11: Thanks, Kyle. You know, whether it's the calendar, the clock, the tides, or Mm -hmm. the rising and setting of the sun, most of our lives are structured around the passing of time. Mm -hmm. It follows that the idea of time is found in many idioms and phrases that we use. In English, we reference time in expressions like in a jiffy Mm -hmm. or once in a blue moon. But how much time do these phrases refer to? Oh, this will be interesting. So I think it's time we <laughs> look at some of these idioms. Okay. <clears throat> Kyle, how soon would you expect me to do something if I said I would do it in a jiffy?
10: I'd say within five minutes.
11: Uh, not a day.
10: No, 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 no. And
11: certainly not a week or a month. No. Those aren't jiffies. No. Okay. Well, you might be surprised, as I was, that the idiom is rooted in the sciences, where a jiffy is a concrete, measurable unit.
10: Really? <laughs> yes. So, so what is a jiffy?
11: It's used by scientists in different ways to connote a very, very tiny amount of time. Okay. For physicists, it indicates how long it takes for light to travel one femtometer, okay. a millionth of a millionth of a millimeter.
10: So when you say you're going to do something in a jiffy. You're going to be longer than a jiffy, tiny, yeah. Tiny, tiny. <laughs>
11: uh, it, it's all also used by electrical engineers to measure the length of a single cycle of alternating current where it equals 17 milliseconds. I guess that's a little longer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> wow. In computer science, it's variable. A jiffy equals 1 to 10 milliseconds.
10: So when you say a jiffy. Yeah. Yeah.
11: yeah. Let's yeah. talk okay. fast. Okay, yes. Kyle, if I'm relieved that something happened, even if at the very last moment, how might I express that? It happened...
10: At the 11th hour?
11: mm, No, no. I mean, that's... It happened late. Okay. But... Oh, uh, this has happened in the nick of time. There you go. Okay. Yeah. The saying goes back to the 16th century England. A nick was a small notch or cut used to portray extreme precision at the time typically on measuring sticks or in tally marks. Mm. So something happened. if something happened in the nick of time, it means it would have happened very close to the beginning. Mm. Mm. Before the 16th century, the phrase pudding time, like P-U-D-D-I-N-G, pudding mm-hmm. time, was used instead of in the nick because pudding, a savory dish of meat at, at the time, Right. Was the first portion served during medieval medieval meals? When it became a sweet dessert, as we think of pudding today, the nick was introduced. So it was in the pudding of time. Wow!
10: <laughs> I'm going to try to use. I'm going to try to remember and use that this week. And so the original in the pudding time ta- in pudding, pudding time means mm-hmm. you're doing it at the beginning. Yeah. Okay.
11: Mm-hmm. And. <laughs> As it was needed. Right, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Kyle, this next one is about the quality of time, not the length. Mm-hmm. If you're having a really good time, what idiom might you use? I'm having a.
1: Uh,
10: an idiom.
11: I'm uh, having a blank of a time.
3: I'm
10: having a. Whale? Yeah.
11: (laughs) Have you ever used that? I've always known what it means, but I'm not sure I've. I have.
10: I had an elementary school teacher who would use that. Oh, you're having a whale of a time,
11: aren't (laughs) you? So sit there and be quiet. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The origins are murky, but it's been around for a few centuries. It likely came from seafaring whalers, obviously, who began using the term to describe anything unusual or grand referencing the lore surrounding whales. Yeah, okay, that makes
10: complete sense to me.
11: I don't think I've ever used this next one, but I've heard it. In a few shakes. What does that mean?
10: Well, I relatively quickly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
11: Just like Jiffy, it's a real unit of measurement. A shake. Yeah. In physics, mm. you know, that's physics for you. <laughs> a shake is the unit of time used to measure the One step of a nuclear chain reaction. This equals 10 nanoseconds, which Mm -hmm. is 10 billionths of a second. Oh,
6: my goodness.
11: You know, physics comes with some great words. Quark
10: and charm. What's charm?
11: I don't know. I've heard my husband talk about (laughs) it, but I don't know what it is. (laughs) If you would like to go back in time to meet someone or maybe undo something you did that you regret... What would you like to do idiom wise? Uh,
10: so, I want to go back in time. Mm-hmm. I want to
11: turn actually, back time. That, well, turn back. The hands of there time. There you go. So, okay. I say it's a song. Right. Isn't right, it? right. A share song. Yeah. yeah. Gen Z might be a little fuzzy on this one, but it refers to an analog clock. <laughs>
10: with, oh, in the old movies. With a where face they would... and
11: hands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The pointers that move around the face of the clock are called hands. So turning back the hands of time metaphorically means to go back in time. Kyle, I don't know if you still have to do this, but didn't you used to have to get up really early to go to work? About (laughs) 3.30. And what idiom might you use to express that?
10: Uh, (laughs) An idiom, not just (laughs) how you express it. Uh, Crack a dawn. Yeah.
11: I call it the crack of hell. yeah, well, <laughs> the nineteenth century uh, saying originated as the crack of the day,
12: if Ooh, not I like that. yeah,
11: if not at the exact moment the sun rises. The symbolism in this idiom refers to the thin line of sunlight that appears to make a bright crack in the sky as the sun appears over the horizon.
10: If my dog could talk, I think she would call that time of day 15 minutes too late to get out of bed. <laughs> Let's go for a walk before the crack of dawn.
11: Finally, Kyle, if you're talking about something that happens really, really rarely, mm-hmm. what idiom might you use?
10: Really rarely. Mm-hmm. Once in a blue there moon. There you go. Yes.
11: You, you just, you're just a mind reader. I no, just can't no, believe I'm, this.
10: <laughs> there's an, a great Nancy Griffith song, Just Once in a Very Blue Moon. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I don't know that. Beautiful know song. That one. Yeah. Yeah.
11: Astronomers could tell you exactly how rare this is. A blue moon is a special type of full moon that happens once every two or three years when a single month has two moons. That rare second full moon is called the blue moon. Did you know that? I did, mm-hmm. and
10: I actually organized most of, an, like, 25 years ago. I did a nose at large. It was all sort of around Blue Moon. And, of course, there are people who will tell you it's something different.
11: Oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> yes. And these days, there are no facts. So, That's right. Yeah. Having recently celebrated my 75th birthday, Kyle, I probably wouldn't be able to do this these days, but I have been known to stay out and dance until the cows come home.
10: <laughs> Our militant grammarian? Is Katherine Scherlds.
4: Historic Cane Hill presents Niloke and Beyond 20th Century Swirl Art Pottery now through July 8th. This exhibition features the Swirled Missionware and pieces inspired by the Arkansas made Niloke Pottery. The Historic Cane Hill Gallery is open Thursday through Saturday, 10 a.m. until 2 p.m., and by appointment. More at historiccanehillar.org.
0: You've been listening to a special archive episode of Ozarks at Large on KUAF 91.3 FM in Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Greenwood. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors to this program included Matthew Moore, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Sophia Narani, Jacqueline Froelich, and Kyle Kellams. Our militant grammarian is Catherine Schurlds. Today's show was produced in the Karen Taha News Studio. A quick reminder, Ozarks at Large is taking a short vacation this week, but don't worry, we'll still be here with you all week long, just with some archive and special episodes. Tomorrow, it's a sampling of stories from recent KUAF podcasts. Until then, I'm Daniel Carruth. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.